0: We continue our Harmony of the Gospels. I want you to turn with me, first of all, to John 18. We're going to read, this is actually found in four passages, but we're just going to read two of them this morning. John 18, we'll read verses 12-14, through 14, and then read verses 19-24 through 24 to start. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound Him and led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly... Why do you strike me? So Anna sent in bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Turn over to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. We'll read verse 53 and then 55 through 65. They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Verse 55. Now, the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put Him to death. And they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony about Him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against Him, saying, we heard Him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing His clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned Him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at Him and to blindfold Him and to beat Him with their fists and to say to Him, Prophesy! And the officers received Him with slaps in the face. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your ongoing work on our hearts. We pray as we continue on in our harmony of the Gospels working through the life and ministry of Jesus and as we come ever closer to His meeting with the cross, I pray that You would help us to have clarity of mind as we consider the details, the historical events that are present here, We would also learn something about not only how these men responded to Jesus, but how men in general respond to Him even to this day. Lord, I pray that You would do genuine heart change within our congregation today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. this morning we begin the court proceedings in which Jesus will be examined and condemned. First, there are three mini-trials that happen among the Jews, followed by three more trials before secular authorities, before the Romans. So three before the Jews, and then three before the Romans, before Jesus is handed over to be crucified. In the midst of all of this, we're also going to see what happens with Judas, the one whom Jesus prophesied would betray Him. And we're also going to see what happens to Peter, the one whom Jesus prophesied would deny Him. One betrays Him, one denies Him. And we'll learn about that in coming weeks as well. As I consider these first two rounds, we're going to look at the first two rounds of six in which Jesus goes through court hearings. I was astounded anew to see how Jesus was treated so horrendously No human being should have been handled in this manner. And then to think that this is God's own Son in the flesh being treated like this, it's rather mind-blowing. Here is the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, and he receives unjustifiable harassment, unsupportable accusation, and intolerable mockery. Here's the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, and he's receiving this unjustifiable harassment, this unsupportable accusation, and this intolerable mockery. So, Here in a sermon entitled, The True Prophet, Priest, and King, we're going to see three ways in which this fallen world has reacted to Jesus. You see, the religious leaders are just a foil that we can learn even about how people respond to Jesus still to this day. First of all, Point number one, the true king is harassed. The true king harassed. Here we see a true king being disrespected. If there's ever anyone who deserves our highest respect, it's Jesus. Yet we see him receive treatment of the worst sort. Even Jesus commented in his own arrest. Remember, he says, Why do you come to me like a robber or a thief? I was in your temples during the day. I haven't been doing anything meriting this sort of show of force. He was betrayed by Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then he willingly gives himself up to the authorities. And we know that for certain, because remember the miraculous thing that happens. Jesus identifies himself. He says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am. And then everyone falls backward to the ground. Right. So we know who's in charge of the arrest. And it's not the Roman guards. It's not the high priest's servants. It's Jesus. He's willingly going with them to where they want to go. It's appropriate, they say, that they led Him there well, because He's willingly going to where they're headed. If He wasn't willing, He wouldn't go. And they couldn't make Him. He's led immediately to the house of Annas, the high priest Caiaphas's father-in-law. By the way, this account is only recorded by John's Gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke I'll speak about what happens with the Jewish councils uh, before Caiaphas. But only John remarks on this stop on the way. They stop first at Annas' house, who is the father-in-law of Caiaphas. It's kind of interesting here that as they lead him there, it seems like the guards are pretty much unfazed by being knocked to the ground. And remember right after that also, they saw Jesus heal Malchus' ear, right? So they saw two miracles happen. And meanwhile, they're still just leading Jesus off to where he's supposed to go. Their hearts are so stubborn. And we see the same kind of expressions of unbelief and stubbornness today, right, in relationship with God. There are people who deny God's existence. call themselves atheists or agnostics and deny his existence or say that it can't be proved whether or not he exists. But meanwhile, throughout the world, every single day and every single night, God has given ample evidence So not only his existence, but even his invisible attributes are clearly seen through what God has made. And he's put a conscience within men's hearts. So when they deny him, they do it knowingly. They know that they're wicked and wretched. Anyway, we see the same sort of hard-heartedness in these guards as they take Jesus off to Annas' house. Now, the question though is, why would they lead him there? Why to the father-in-law of the high priest? Shepherd explains, Annas served himself as high priest from 86 to A.D. 15, and through astute politics, had succeeded in securing from the Romans the succession of this office to his five sons, and now his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who was the present occupant of the high priesthood. What had happened is the Romans had taken Caiaphas, or I'm sorry, taken Annas out of his position as high priest, but Annas had enough clout that he could get his sons put in his place, and here now we have eventually even his own son-in-law it's possible that some still look to Annas as the true high priest. Because while the Romans removed him from office, by Jewish law, Annas would have still been the high priest. So it's possible that while there are other high priests functioning, everyone's still looking to Annas as kind of like the -the behind-the-scenes power in front of everything. In fact, the New Testament, when it dates John the Baptist's ministry, when it was said to have started, it says that it started in the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas as if they were holding office jointly. And they weren't. Caiaphas was the high priest, but Annas is named alongside of Caiaphas. Again, probably father-in-law has a lot more power, and everyone kind of knows that. Uh, remember, he had five of his own sons come through the high priesthood, and now it's his son-in-law. So this is kind of like you know the family patriarch, and he's still exercising a tremendous amount of influence. Edersheim says this, Annas enjoyed all the dignity of the office and all of its influence also, since he was able to promote to it those most closely associated with him. And while they acted publicly, he really directed affairs without either the responsibility or the restraints which the office imposed. It's the perfect position to get everything you want done, right? You pull all the strings, and meanwhile, you're outside of the limelight. That seems to be the picture of what's going on here. So we might even call him the high priest emeritus, right? He's kind of stepped out of the formal office, but he's still exercising tons and tons of influence and great power. And he's probably one of the major voices behind this whole conspiracy against Jesus, a uh, behind-the-scenes mover and shaker. Leanne Moore said it this way, there's little doubt but that the astute old man at the head of the family exercised a good deal of authority. He was, in all probability, the real power in the land, whatever the legal technicalities. But what motive would Annas have with Jesus? Why why might he want Jesus dead? Well, there'd be several things we could mention. But there's one most notable that I think just comes right here to the surface, and you're going to see it even come up in the context of the mockery of a trial that Jesus gets. But Annas was wealthy and influential. And a lot of his wealth came from the profiteering he was able to do through the temple sacrifice system. As a matter of fact, you know those two times when Jesus comes to the temple and he clears out the money changers and the sacrifices and all that stuff? you know that the outer court of the temple was known by some people as the bazaars of Annas? Annas was the one that was in charge of all of that. And because he had this power that no one would really check, all of that, Stuff was going on. He was making a whole lot of money. Shepherd said it this way. Annas ran a monopoly on the sale of the animals for the sacrifices in the stalls of the money changers. It was the vested interest of this monopoly that Jesus had assailed in both his first and second cleansings of the temple. So Annas particularly has the most to gain or lose with Jesus literally financially as it relates to the temple. It could be some combination of that greed that lust for power. He's got a pretty sweet position with Rome. He doesn't want things to be shaken up at all. And Jesus is is this wild card that he can't quite figure out. What is Jesus all about? What is he trying to do? All he for sure knows is that he's destroyed his profiteering in the temple at least twice. Perhaps Annas wanted Jesus to be brought to him first, almost maybe to gloat over him. Or maybe to get some information before the preceding trial would take place. Kind of like a pre-trial examination. So the true king is now questioned. The high priest asks Jesus about his disciples and about his teachings. This is all in John 18. He asks him about his disciples and about his teachings. So he has two elements. Tell me about your followers, Jesus, and tell me about what you teach. Tell me the doctrines you purport. This high priest is identified, It he says the high priest said these things. So there's been some question, well, who is being referred to here? And so some people have said, well, maybe Caiaphas was actually over at his father-in-law's house, and that's why they brought Jesus there. But what's odd about that is at the end of John 18's passage, you'll see that it says that Annas then sent Jesus bound to Caiaphas. So if Caiaphas is there already talking it almost is strange to then say that Annas now bowed him and sent him to Caiaphas when Caiaphas was already there. It doesn't quite fit. So how is it possible that it says that the high priest is asking these questions to Jesus, but he's in Annas's house? Well, I think the explanation is actually quite simple. We do the same thing with presidents today, don't we? After a president is no longer in office, what do we refer to them as? We still call him president, right? President Bush or President Clinton. right? We still use those sorts of out of an honorary sort of thing. Sometimes we might say former president, blah, 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 former president, blah, blah, blah. But even doctors, if they're not serving in medicine anymore, we still might call them doctor so-and-so, just out of respect for the individual. Well, I think that's the same thing that's going on here. And then if you combine with that the fact that high priests kind of served for life, they wouldn't have been removed otherwise. So he's been removed by an unlawful you know, foreign entity. So he's probably still referred to as the high priest even though Caiaphas is technically, legally, by Roman rule, the high priest. So all that to say, I think this is Annas, who's questioning Jesus. He wants first dibs with Jesus. He wants to get some information from Jesus, because it's going to help fuel the case against Jesus. This is kind of like this pre-trial interview. So he asks two rounds of questions. The first is, he wants to know something about Jesus' disciples. Now, this is most likely out of a desire to estimate Jesus' power of influence, right? If you're going to deal with a leader of a movement, what do you want to know? How many people do you have behind you? What are they willing to do? So this is kind of like he's trying to like, size up his enemy. How many people do you have? How committed to the cause are they? What might they cause as a result of all of this? But we don't see Jesus answering a word regarding his disciples, This fits again with what Jesus said earlier. His concern was the protection of His disciples. He doesn't want to draw any attention to them at all. Instead, all the attention is focused on Himself. Remember, the Jewish leadership was concerned. John 11, verse 48. If we let Him go on like this, all men will believe in Him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You see it? Here's what's fueling the Jewish response to Jesus. They're concerned that people are actually going to believe in Jesus. They're actually going to follow Jesus. And this is going to upset Rome. And Rome's going to come in and cause some big problems for everybody who's in leadership. Because that's how it normally goes in those things, right? Whenever there's a rebellion or a revolt, whoever's in power says we go right up to the top. Whoever's in charge, you're going to get it first. And then we'll move down from there. We'll replace all of those leaders with other leaders who can enact the sort of discipline that we want within that region. So the, the, the desires that are here are to figure out how many people does Jesus have? But Jesus doesn't list any of His disciples. He doesn't answer a word regarding all of this. He wants all these murderous plots to fall on Himself, not on His disciples. By the way, even if Jesus were to list His disciples at that moment, where are they? They fled, right? They've run away. One has betrayed Him. He's about to commit suicide. Others have run away and deserted Him. And Peter, who's one of the ones closest by, and we skipped over those, we'll get to it next week, we'll see him deny Jesus, right? doesn't seem like any impressive force of individuals, and these are the closest ones to Jesus, right? But regardless, Jesus doesn't mention a thing. Now, as it relates to Jesus' teaching, Jesus does have an answer for Annas, but it kind of goes like this. He had no reason to conceal what he had taught, but he also had no need to repeat it. He says, I've spoken boldly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. And i spoke nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask the ones having heard what I spoke to them. Behold, they know what I said. Jesus' response to Annas is to say, If you wonder what I've been saying, ask around. Now, these are the words of a guiltless man, right? I mean if I'm guilty and I'm shady and I'm sneaky, the last thing in the world I want is for the light to expose all of my dealings. <laughs> Just bring up as many witnesses as possible. No, 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 no. Let's keep this thing hush hush. Jesus is saying, expose it to the world. Bring in the people. I've spoken openly in the synagogues and the temples. Bring them in. They know what I said. I have no fear of what I've said. I stood up the only truth and I've spoken completely in the light of day. Boldly. What a difference. Between what the Jewish leaders are doing, right? I mean, it's this very exact moment they're engaged in a lot of duplicity and deception. They're wanting to do everything in a hidden state. Jesus says, let's bring this out into the open. Let's ask the people what they think I've been saying. What Jesus is doing here to Annas, he's exposing the illegal nature of everything that's going on. He's been arrested without any charge. They don't even know what he teaches. They're asking him, what do you teach? whole thing is just backward Jesus is in essence saying go ahead with due process <laughs> go ahead and get your witnesses bring them let's have a formal arraignment a formal court case you see they don't want to go to a public trial they don't want to conduct a thoroughgoing investigation they don't want to discover truth they want Jesus dead they're not after truth they're after what is expedient. And John reminds us this. He says this is precisely what Caiaphas had said earlier without any idea of the fuller prophetic nature of the words that Caiaphas said. He says Caiaphas was the one having advised the Jews that it was expedient, that it was profitable to them for one man to die for the people. That's what Caiaphas says earlier. We saw this in John 11. You can kind of read the surrounding context of that. John 11 Verses 47 through 53. Listen to this context. So the chief priests and Pharisees convene a council. They say, what are we doing? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him. The Romans are going to come and take away our place and away our nation. Remember, this is following the resurrection of Lazarus, right? So people are in a scur and they're like, what are we going to do with this guy? One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest, said to them, you know nothing at all nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man died for the people and the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they plotted together to kill him. Understand this. Annas' reason, all of the religious leaders' reason is being held captive to a practical concern. Whether they believe the testimonies about Jesus or not, Caiaphas is arguing that it would be better to offer up Jesus to be killed than for the whole nation to perish due to the attention that his miracles are drawing and the change that his teaching is causing. It'd be better for him to die. Let him be the scapegoat. So that way the rest of the nation might be preserved any sort of Roman wrath. John here says, Caiaphas didn't know just how prophetic his statement was. There was a much deeper level to what he was saying there. Because the real concern for mankind is not Roman wrath, but God's wrath. The real concern is how is it possible for us to not perish? And God the Father in His marvelous wisdom determined a plan whereby He would not spare His own Son. His own Son would die so that not only israelites but non-israelites gentiles might be brought into a family together having their sins forgiven having god's wrath taken away and being granted the perfect righteousness of jesus christ but don't mistake this annas is not searching for truth he's not concerned about upholding the law his desire was not to honor the lord okay so jesus responds with this and there's a servant standing nearby And here we see the true king is slapped. This officer takes exception with Jesus' words, and he slaps Jesus and says, you answer the high priest like that? I wonder if this is uh, an attempt by this servant to kind of seek Annas' favor. Like, look at this, I'm standing up for you. He knows that Annas is being bested by reason. How sad it is that this goes this way often. When reasoning doesn't work, we resort to physical violence. Right? That didn't get us anywhere. Jesus is besting and that way. So let's slap Jesus and try to straighten him out that way. Jesus responds very simply, If I testified wrongly, show me the wrong. But if rightly, why do you attack me? His reasoning here is impeccable. If he had done something wrong in his request for proper legal procedure, then correct that. But if he hasn't done anything wrong, What justifiable reason does this man have to slap him, to hit him? We know, though, that this slap is just a foreshadowing of coming events. Jesus will testify truthfully and He will be beaten, stricken, spat upon, and crucified for it. He'll be accused of blasphemy, a charge which is only applicable to those speaking untruth about God or speaking about God without reverence or without proper humility. And Jesus never did any of those things. Jesus has requested due process. He said, bring in the witnesses. So Jesus will now be transported to the high priest's house. You see, Annas was not able to find any incriminating evidence against Jesus, nor was he able to ascertain the strength of Jesus' influence. But for Jesus to be presented to the Romans on formal charges, Annas couldn't do that. Remember, he's the puppet master. He's behind the scenes. He's got to get this done through Caiaphas and through the rest of the Sanhedrin. So now he says, it's time for you to go off to Caiaphas. This disrespect, this harassment that Jesus received, both then and now, is owing to the fact that we live in a fallen world in which Satan is deceiving many. Just think about it for just a minute. You ever step back from these kind of moments and go, why would this world hate Jesus with such vengeance? What did Jesus do to them? Right? I wonder, that. I wonder that about Christian martyrs. Why does this world hate Christians in such a way that subject them to horrendous punishments and torture? What do they do? What do they do to them of an evil nature? And certainly Christians are not perfect. But it's a part of who we are. We don't seek the world's stuff. So it can't be for envy. It's not like we're fighting for this. So you can have the stuff. It's not about stuff. As right? it, it relates to a relationship with one another. We love one another. We care for one another. We desire that the lost be saved. We care that they find forgiveness of their sins. We seek God's glory and humanity's good. But meanwhile, why does this world hate us so? Why does the world hate Jesus so? We realize that we're not living in our home. This is not our home. This world has fallen. And Satan is active. And we see the true king being harassed secondly we see the true priest accused we see the true priest accused we see the true high priest given a mock trial filled with unagreeable testimony and i mean that literally like they could not agree it was testimony that did not agree here is jesus who said about himself i am the way the truth and the life so here is jesus the truth And he's quiet before false witnesses. Religious leaders attempt to condemn Jesus on the basis of testimony, but Matthew rightly terms them false testimonies. They brought in a parade of false witnesses. They knowingly engage in what is a complete violation of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And they're having them lining up like a parade. Let's bring them in. Let's get some sort of story against him. You see, this whole trial is a sham. It's all erected to give the appearance of righteousness when it was nothing of the sort. The council had decided long before the case had even begun. They had pre-planned and attempted to plant evidence against Jesus. This is a trial in search of a charge. Right? They're engaged in a trial and they haven't even charged him with anything. They're trying to find something to stick to him and nothing sticks. But they've already haven't heard it. He's guilty and he needs to die. They have a verdict and a sentence, but they have no charge. So many elements of this trial were not in accordance with protocols that even Jewish law, Jewish criminal law, set up. There was a particular procedure that's even established in other Jewish writings as to how they're supposed to go about crimes and how they're supposed to go about capital murder or capital crimes in which murder or the death of the individual would would come as a result. First of all, the place where you met was to be the place of the Sanhedrin, not the high priest's palace. So they're in the wrong location. Secondly, it wouldn't be done at night. There's actually specific words about this. We do not start these sorts of proceedings at night. This is in the middle of the night. It says the only thing you can do at night is if you've had proceedings throughout the entire day, you can pass a sentence at the end if you had to. But even then they said you had to wait an extra day if you are going to call for the person's death. Also, no process was to take place on Sabbaths or feast days, nor in the evenings of feast days. Now, you go, know, why talk about all these technicalities? I agree, that's, these are minutiae compared to the bigger story. But the reason I bring them up is because these are the men that were all about the details, the minutest little letter of the law stuff, right? So this is the guy coming up to Jesus like, hey, your disciples washed their hands. They washed their hands at the wrong, wrong time, the wrong place. Or, oh, Jesus, you just healed this guy who was paralyzed on the Sabbath. How dare you do that on the Sabbath, right? And these are the guys that are doing that. Meanwhile, here at Jesus' trial, they throw all of that to the wind. They're not only missing the spirit of the law, they're missing even the letter of the law. They're not even following their own laws. Such a sham. The hypocrisy here is so thick. All this is just further evidence of what's already told us. There's an ulterior motive at play. This is not some investigation, this is a lynch mob. A decision had already been reached long before the arrest. Everything that is happening now is just the attempt at giving what they want to do some measure of legitimacy. They just want to make their evil look like it's good. Sadly, how many people today suffer from the same condition? Wanting to just make what is evil appear to be good or righteous. The religious leaders were filled with rage that Jesus could affect their position with Rome and their wealth and connection with the temple. And so they bring in all the witnesses. But... Everything begins falling apart because the witnesses' stories aren't lining up. They're not saying the same thing. There's no consistency. Jesus couldn't be discredited because no charge could stick. In all of history, there has ever been such a travesty of justice as this one. Their plot isn't going well for them. Jesus won't even dignify their lies with an answer, he remains silent. He doesn't even answer a word. He feels no compunction to correct all the atrocities that his enemies are laying at his feet. He entrusts himself to God the Father knowing that God will take care of him in his perfect timing. I just think about Jesus here and I can't help but contemplate my, my own behavior when accused of anything. I'm so quick to want to establish my righteousness especially when I'm innocent of a charge, right? (laughs) Especially those. Sometimes when I sin, I also want to try to establish that I'm still right, right? That's wrong too, obviously. But I'm just thinking about like, you know, even in those moments where I am innocent of a particular thing, there's a whole multitude of other things surrounding that that I might have been wrong in. There might have been something amidst that. I mean, I might have said the right word, but I maybe said it with the wrong tone or said it with the wrong heart or the wrong motivation. So it's like, well... Technically, my words were right, but my heart was wrong, so it doesn't really matter. You know, so, you know all kinds of moments like that. But I'm still—we're you know, our best inner lawyer, right? We're always justifying our own actions, and when somebody brings an accusation, we're quick. Often, sadly, we're quick to become defensive and to argue our case. Well, here's Jesus. If there's any ever, ever been someone who could say completely, utterly, I am innocent of all charges. This is a bunch of lies. It was Jesus. There he is. Quiet. Silent. My point is not to say that we can never stand up and say what is true or right. Not my point. My point, though, is just the heart behind what Jesus is doing here. And he was willing to take all of this for us. Here is Jesus, who had every perfect right to shut the mouths of these liars, yet he utters not a word, and he submits himself to this huge zoo of a case. Matthew explains that then there are two witnesses who are brought forward, and they testify that Jesus said some specific words about the temple. By the way, we see these recorded in John 2. They bear false witness, we're told, saying, We heard Him saying, I will destroy this made-with-hands temple, and through three days I will build another not made-with-hands Now, this is a very interesting moment for them to select. And this is where we come back to Annas. think a little bit about Caius this. Jesus said these words when he was asked, by what authority have you just cleansed the temple? This is right after Jesus has turned over the money changers' tables. We saw this in in John 2. By what authority do you do this? And Jesus then says this. Tear down this temple. I'll rebuild it in three days. So, they're quoting from an event that brings up a subject which is itself a whole bunch of sin. Right? All of the profiteering going on within the temple. The place where Jesus says, this is my Father's house. This would be called the house of prayer. And you've made it into a robber's den. But they're so desperate. They've got to find something against Jesus. They're even willing to bring up what should be a debacle. What should be something that we hang our heads in shame over what was going on in the temple But instead they bring up these words that Jesus mentioned and then they fail to even quote him correctly. Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then people respond, in 46 years it took to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? And then we get the following description, parenthetical from John. By this, Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus' words were not, destroy this physical temple and I will raise up a spiritual temple in three days. That's not what Jesus said. He said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. Jesus was referring to His body the whole time. The point of reference, the temple was always ultimately meant to point to Jesus. The temple was the place in which God met with His people. Jesus would now be the means by which God communes with His people. They can't even get this quotation right. They'd hastily put together a malicious case and all of its gaps and holes are showing up. And the more testimony that's heard, I'm sure the more embarrassing it's becoming, right? I mean, how many of these guys are you had come up? Like, Man, you said it wrong. You know, we're getting this wrong. Can't we just coach these guys a little bit better before we bring them on in here? Come on, I'm gonna repeat after me. Say these words. Let's just get this thing done. But nothing sticks. It's just such a strange, weird environment because they're all like murderers. But meanwhile, they're trying to establish some righteousness by which they can kill Jesus? It's strange. They're fine with lying. But they're not fine with the lies not adding up with it before Jesus. Edersheim says, On that night of terror, when all the enemy of man and power of hell were unchained, even the falsehood of benevolence could not lay any crime to his charge. Nor yet any accusation be brought against him other than the misrepresentation of his symbolic words. <laughs> the only thing they have is to misrepresent something he said symbolically. That's all they've got. So, we then see the true high priest charged by the false high priest. In the middle of all this tumult, Caiaphas rises. I'm sure he's like, this is enough. <laughs> I cannot listen to this any further. He goes to Jesus, you don't have anything to say? Come on, say something, Jesus. There's been a lot of stuff said here today. And Jesus is still quiet. He has nothing to say to all of that. He won't even dignify it with a response. It's a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter... And like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. So then the high priest asks the question. The big question. In effect, who are you? Who are you, Jesus? Are you the Christ? Mark has it this way. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Or the Blessed One? Matthew 26, 63 says it this way. A little more formal. I charge you under oath. I adjure you by the living God that you tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Still today, this is the question before us. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus. Because if He's an imposter, or if He's a liar, then He deserved the death on a cross. And all those who follow Him are fools, and fools among most to be most pitied. But if He was and is who He said He was and is, and He showed Himself to be, then He willingly took a penalty which He, which not He, but we, deserved. And He was condemned for something Not for something He had done wrong, but for who He rightly was. All to fulfill His Father's plan. You see, Jesus was, is, and ever will be God's Son, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of men. And He saved men by dying for them. But well, you don't have to take my word for that. Let's see what Jesus said. And this might be, some of the titles like the Christological climax of the Gospels. Right? Everything's building this moment. Who are you, Jesus? He's there before all of the religious leaders. Here's the moment. And Jesus up to this point has been utterly silent. And I'm sure when, when Caiaphas brings the question, you would probably hear a pin drop in the room. No. What is Jesus going to say? Ederschein says this, No doubt or hesitation could here exist Solemn, emphatic, calm, majestic, as before had been his silence, was now his speech. Here in the Jewish high court, Jesus plainly declares who he is. Anyone who says, ever says, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, take him to these two places. <laughs> Matthew 26, 64, you have said it. That's the way he said there. In Mark 14, 62, I am. Ego e me. I am. Here's clear acceptance. I take the title of Christ, Messiah. Yes, I am. I take the title of Son of God. Yes, I am. The high priest rips his garments. Rips them apart. He cries out, blasphemy! That's a serious action. You know in Leviticus 21, priests were forbidden from ripping their garments. But they made exceptions for particularly heinous situations. And one of them was blasphemy. He rips his garments. It was something that was reserved for extreme cases. Not so interesting to me about it. The action is so ironic. It's ironically fitting that the false high priest would rip his garments in the presence of the true high priest. It wasn't because Jesus' words were blasphemous. The reason why the false high priest's garments should be ripped is because he failed to recognize the true high priest. What good is the leader of God's people who does not recognize, submit to, and worship God's Son? He ought to be defrocked. He ought to have his garments removed. You see, he thinks he did it out of worship of God, but it was quite different. He was being disrobed in the presence of the true high priest. The charge of blasphemy is false. Because Jesus, not because Jesus claimed to be equal with God, but because they failed to recognize that He was. He was God's own Son. He was the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed, the Son of Man. Caiaphas says, What need do we have of further testimony? I'm sure he's like, Phew, No more of these guys. Right? What need do we have of any further testimony? You have all heard it. We've all witnessed what he just said. And they all condemn Jesus as worthy of death. This, again, is irony of irony. They say Jesus is worthy of death. Jesus is deserving of death. This is the only human being of whom it can be said He did not deserve death. Everyone else deserves death, but not Jesus. And meanwhile, these wretched evildoers say that He deserves death. He never sinned he never done anything wrong. The wages of sin is death. He didn't sin. He didn't deserve death. Every other single human being on the face of the planet deserves death for the wages of sin is death. Yet in another way, Jesus, let me say this in another way, it is true that Jesus alone is worthy to die as a substitute in the place of wretched sinners. Only He, is worthy to do such a thing for us. But Jesus also takes on to this. He says, not only I am, but He then says, and hereafter you will see Me as the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. It's a combination of quotes from Psalm 110, verse 1, and Daniel 7, verse 13. He's Inflating two references together, which are often mentioned in the New Testament. You see these two talked about a bunch. Daniel 7.15 and Psalm 110.1. But here what's going on, the false high priest is attempting to vilify Jesus. What Jesus says is, ultimately, God the Father will vindicate me. His universal sovereignty will soon be manifest. Because He has a universal and unending dominion. And they're all going to see it soon. He says, hereafter, you're going to see something quite different. You're going to see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus' resurrection and ascension proved that all of this was done for God's higher purposes. Jesus would be vindicated. His resurrection was authenticated that Jesus was who He said He was and that He had satisfied God's wrath on account of sinners who who trusted in Him. Jesus is not only the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, but He's also the Son of Man who's presently seated at the right hand of God the Father making intercession for us and He's poised and ready at any time to come back riding in the clouds of heaven to get His bride. Jesus is saying to these wicked leaders, one day the tables will be turned. One day this will all be turned around. I will appear as the Messianic Judge upon the clouds of heaven All things done in secret will be brought to light and soundly punished in accordance with perfect righteousness. And everything will be put under Jesus' feet and He will rule forevermore. Third and last, let's consider the true prophet prophet mocked. The true prophet mocked. So, the Jewish leaders call for Jesus' execution, but living under Roman rule, they don't have the prerogative to just stone him on the spot, so he has to be sent to secular courts. But remember, this whole proceeding happened in the middle of the night. The whole proceeding itself isn't in accordance with their own little rules of jurisprudence. So they have to meet again, we're going to see that in Luke, they're going to have to meet a third time, another time, in order to just officially say, this is what's happening with Jesus, so he can then send him on to Pilate, the governor. But in the meantime, this doesn't stop them from insulting and mocking Jesus. They spit on His face, they blindfold Him, and then they begin hitting and slapping Him. And they say to Him, Tell us who hit you. Prophesy! Tell us who's hitting you. Luke 22 tells us that there were other things that aren't even recorded here that they said blasphemous things towards Jesus. Which brings up the whole point. Who's really the one blaspheming? Who's really the one blaspheming? Well, you see, the prophecies about this true prophet came true. Time and time again, what the Old Testament prophesied came true in Jesus. Jesus fulfilled what the Old Testament prophesied. This is that ever-present real proof that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the true prophet, the true king, the true priest. Jesus, throughout all of this, remains in control. All the suffering He undergoes is all foretold. Isaiah 50, verse 6. Listen to this. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. And of all the irony, again, this thing is just just chock full of irony, they're blindfolding Him and slapping Him and hitting Him and saying, prophesy who's hitting you. Prophesy who's hitting you. Meanwhile, Jesus had said earlier, Mark 10, verses 33 and 34, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn Him to death. They will hand Him over to the Gentiles. They will mock Him and spit on Him and scorch Him and kill Him and three days later He will rise again. Thus, Their very actions are a fulfillment of Jesus' words. They are part of the fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus had spoken earlier. All this rebounds to being reminded that Just as the prophecies before Jesus came true, just as the words that Jesus said came true, so the prophecies still yet to be fulfilled will come true. Jesus was on a mission. And as 1 Peter 2 says, While being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but He kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds, you were healed. The insults, Edersheim says it this way the insults, the taunts, the blows which fell upon that lonely sufferer, not defenseless, but undefending, not vanquished, but uncontending, not helpless, but majestic and voluntary self submission for the highest purpose of love, have not only exhibited the curse of humanity, but also removed it by letting it descend on him, the perfect man, the Christ, the Son of God. And just as He would bear our sin as the suffering servant, so He would rise from the dead, ascend to heaven as the Son of Man, and sit at God's right hand, interceding for His bride, the church, and one day coming in glory, righting all wrongs, and recreating the heavens and the earth. So the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, receives unjustifiable harassment, unsupportable accusation, and intolerable mockery. But he willingly takes all this upon himself in obedience to his Father for our salvation. I close with the words of J.C. Ryle Jesus was led away captive and dragged before the high priest's bar, not because he could not help himself, but because he had set his whole heart on saving sinners by bearing their sins by being treated as a sinner, and by being punished in their stead. He was a willing prisoner that we might be set free. He was willingly arraigned and condemned that we might be absolved and declared innocent. Let's pray together. Mm -hmm. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for this tremendous gift. A gift that we can never mind the depths of. That You would give Your Son for vile sinners. We know that You sent Him in accordance with Your marvelous plan to die in the place of sinners. We know that that plan came to pass through the actions of sinful men. But we ourselves know that Jesus' death and crucifixion is because of our own sin. We ourselves are in need of a Savior and the only means by which our sins could be forgiven and remitted and removed would be for the perfect God-man to die in the place of wretched sinners. Thank You for this tremendous gift. May we learn from Jesus' example. May we take on this same attitude and demeanor. But even more than that, may we rejoice in the victory that Jesus has accomplished. We pray this in His name. Amen.